Hi, everybody. This is Toby Logsdon, Senior Pastor of New Beginnings Church in Linwood, Washington, and Founder and Director of BibleStudyPodcasts.org. It's truly been a pleasure to lead this ministry over the course of the past seven and a half years, and I am so grateful, I'm so thankful that the Lord has entrusted me with the task of faithfully proclaiming the scriptures through this ministry. But I'm not alone in this ministry. It belongs to everyone who contributes, whether through your prayers or through your giving. I am so thankful for each and every one of you who takes time out of your day just to listen. And none of this could happen without the faithful and ongoing financial support of our listening audience. As a way of saying thank you to those of you who have faithfully supported our ministry, I'm going to be sending out a copy of my newest book, and actually my first paperback book, based on the study in Philippians that we recently concluded. And additionally, anyone who makes a donation of $10 or more between today, which is June 16th, and the end of July, is going to get a copy of this book sent to them. Or you can buy it on Amazon through their Create Space initiative. It's also available for your Kindle. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you for participating in the financial support of our ministry. And keep growing closer to Jesus. morning. You probably have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 7. You probably want to also have your thumb over in Genesis chapter 2. We'll be exploring that a little bit as well. Um, But welcome. Good morning. We're starting off a new series today. Um, Real quick before we get started, just to let you guys know, my voice is killing me today and I'm not sure why. I think it's maybe allergies from all the wind and uh, everything that we had over the last couple of days had a little bit of trouble hitting some of those some of those high notes uh, in the songs, but you know it is what it is, and uh, I'm able to talk at least. So uh, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, this week we are starting a new series uh, called Cosmic Treason. Uh, it's on a subject that's that's really serious, very important, something that we should all have a good understanding of, and that subject is sin. Uh, and this is an enormous subject. I mean, if you were to try and uh, narrow down just a few verses in the Bible that really you know, nailed it down, it would be difficult. It would be a, a huge task just to try and cover every verse in the Bible that covers sin. I could probably spend the rest of my life teaching on the subject if I were to try to do that and probably only just barely uh, you know, scratch the, the proverbial surface. We've probably all heard of uh, these, these seven deadly sins. Everybody heard of the seven deadly sins, um, which uh, it's something that the church in the Middle Ages, uh, they took really seriously, these sins that were supposedly uh, more serious than any other. And I'm not sure exactly whose job it was to, to come up with this list. I don't know who came up with it or where it comes from exactly. Um, maybe it was loosely derived from Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, where Solomon tells us that there are seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. Um, but these seven deadly sins were pride, envy, anger, laziness, greed, gluttony, and lust. Now, out of these seven, there, there's, there is one that I kind of object to and, and don't agree with completely, and that would be uh, anger. I might take anger off of that list. Uh, Jesus got angry. Uh, God is angry about sin. So in the right context, there is a place for anger. It's not like you can just give a blanket statement like all 
anger is uh, necessarily bad. Uh, it's not necessarily a sin to get angry. What's dangerous about anger is that we're more prone to sin uh, because we lose control of ourselves when we're angry. So uh, maybe anger is something of a catalyst for sin, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily say that sin uh, or that, that anger is uh, absolutely a sin. But that still leaves us with six deadly sins, six very serious sins, each of which, uh, you know, if we take Scripture at face value, is pretty serious stuff. Uh, in fact, all sin, all sin is serious business. And that's the message that Jesus was trying to get across when he said, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He wasn't saying literally do that because that's not really going to stop you from sinning. But what he's saying is sin is serious, serious business. It's, it's nothing to hold a casual, uh, you know, laissez-faire attitude toward. R.C. Sproul uh, wrote, uh, wrote a book called The Holiness of God, classic book, uh, and in this book he calls sin cosmic treason. He writes this, he says, quote, all sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. End quote. And of course, treason is something that uh, our country takes seriously, every country takes seriously. It's something that throughout the ages people have deemed worthy of, uh, of death. And God's word tells us that sin, by the way, is worthy of death as well. So cosmic treason, sin, all sin, big sins, little sins, all of them, all sin is cosmic treason. And yet, the truth of the matter is, that I don't know about you guys, but I personally commit cosmic treason regularly, on a regular basis. In fact, I commit cosmic treason daily, uh, just using this list of the seven deadly sins, even if you take out anger, leaving us with, with six. I am guilty every week, sometimes every day, uh, of, of all these things. And that obviously creates a very serious dilemma for me. How am I supposed to stand before God? What, what, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to, to live and carry on with these sins that I'm committing? Why does it seem to have such a hold on me? Why, why does it seem to have such a hold on my life? Why do I do it? And what about God? What about God? How, how does he feel about my sin? How does he feel about it? How does he look at it? How does he judge it? How does he look at me when I do it? Serious, serious questions. At some point, is he just going to give up on me? Is he just going to say, you know what? You're so filthy with all your sins, Toby. I'm, I'm just done with you. I'm washing my hands of you. At some point, is he just going to give up on me if I keep returning to the same sins over and over? Is he eventually just going to come to the point where he just breaks off the relationship with me? These are important questions. And because each one of us faces a struggle, daily struggle, a minute-by-minute struggle sometimes with sin, we all must somehow come to terms with these types of questions. We have to have answers to these types of questions just to sleep at night, just to have any peace of mind. So in this series, which is going to go until the end of November, at which point, uh, at which point we'll move to uh, a Christmas series, uh, but during this series we're going to be addressing, uh, narrowing down all these questions to four very basic questions. Number one, and that's what we're going to be doing today, is who am I when I sin? Number two is going to be who is God when I sin? Number three, 
is who am I after I sin? And number four is who is God after I sin? And I honestly believe that if we search God's words for answers to these questions, it has the power to change our lives. But it starts with one very basic principle that I want to make sure that we grasp before we go any further here today, and that is this. If you are in Christ Jesus, if He has redeemed you with His blood, you don't have to sin. You don't have to. It is a choice. It's, it, we, were, we were born as people with a, you know, a, a sinful nature and sinful choices. We made sinful choices. Sinful nature, sinful choices. But in Christ Jesus, that sinful nature was put to death. And so now all we have left is sinful choices. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that we're dead to sin. That is our old nature, is dead to sin. And thus it's impossible to live in a way that we've already died to. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And then he writes this in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. He says, we know that our old self, that is, he's talking about our old nature, the, the person that we used to be before Jesus redeemed us. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We don't have to sin. When we sin, we're like slaves who have been set free and yet refuse to walk away from the life of slavery and bondage to an evil master that we've been freed from. I was reading a horrible story this week. A true story, but it's a horrible story about these Vietnamese prostitutes who were redeemed, who were rescued out of that lifestyle. Somebody came in and took them away and returned them to their families. But within a week, they left their families and went back to their pimps. They didn't know how to live apart from this life of selling themselves over and over and over. It's a horrible reality, and it sounds ridiculous, right? But this is the reality that we find in God's Word. We no longer belong to an evil master. In Christ Jesus, we have a loving master. We have a good master who's redeemed us, who has freed us from this evil master called sin. And then Paul goes on to say this. He says in verse 12, uh, Romans chapter 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let it control you, in other words, to make you obey its passions. So the principle here is, is pretty straightforward, and this is the principle that's established firmly in Romans chapter 6. If we are in Christ Jesus, we do not have to sin. When we sin, it's a choice. It's a deliberate choice. But what does that make me? What does it make anybody who's in Christ Jesus and yet chooses to sin? That's a scary question to ask, honestly. But we're going to tackle it head on today. And, and rest assured, friends, that we are not alone in this struggle. The Apostle Paul had to confront the same, the very same reality. It's the issue that he's dealing with in the following chapter of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 7. If you've got your Bibles open, let's read verses 14 and 19. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that, is, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire 
to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do, uh, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. The evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I love uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. By the way, the, the message is not a Bible. It is a paraphrase of the Bible. It's to complement your Bible study so that if you come to a verse that you're having trouble with and you want to see it worded in a, uh, you know, in a much different way, getting the idea uh, across instead of the, the actual words, uh, that's what the message is for. It's not a Bible, it's a paraphrase. But in his paraphrase of this passage, he says this. He says, quote, I can anticipate the response that's coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide, I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep, in, deep within me and gets the better of me every time. Something's gone wrong deep inside of me, and it gets the better of me every time. Does anybody relate to that? Does anybody feel the pain that Paul would have been feeling as he was writing that? I know that I certainly can relate to that struggle. We probably all can, because we've all struggled with sin. That's the reality. I know that there have been times when that's exactly how I've felt. But what hope could we possibly have then if we want to do good but we can't even do it and we don't want to do bad but we do it anyway? What hope could we possibly have? That's the question that this series is going to explore and hopefully it's going to give us a solid answer to the reality of how God has dealt with this insanity, this obsession that you and I have with sin and the filthy desires of our hearts. It starts with understanding who we are and what we are when we sin. Now, to answer that question, that's why I said, you know, want to have one thumb in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2 and take a look at the first time that sin enters into the scene of human history back in just the opening chapters of the Bible. And this is still the story. This is still the story of how you and I get lured into this insanity of sin. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read, And the Lord God planted a a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this is how it all begins. God sets up this garden, and he sets up two trees. And then there's man and his free will. God had created everything that this man, Adam, would need or want in this garden, except a helper. And so once God demonstrates to Adam that Adam would need a helper, uh, that's exactly what he does. He, he, uh, he blesses 
the man. He blesses Adam with a wife. But notice that there are two particular trees that the author specifically directs our attention to. He says, there are all, you know, there are all these trees. And then there's these two trees right here. There's the tree of life, and then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a choice. So God says to Adam in verses 16 to 17, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is basically saying to Adam, this whole place is all yours. This is all for you. It's my blessing to you. It's my gift to you. So enjoy it. Prosper from it. Find pleasure and blessing in it. Drink from any stream, eat from any tree, except, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice that God didn't say that Adam wasn't to eat from the tree of life. He didn't say that. He just says, don't eat from the tree of good and evil knowledge. So we find out in the next chapter of Genesis that the tree of life uh, would have given Adam eternal life. He would not have died if he would have eaten from that tree. Now, some people would, uh, would try to say that the tree of uh, good and evil knowledge you know, it has to be allegorical. It can't be a, a, a real tree that they ate from. Uh, it, it must have been something else. You know, they committed some other sin, and you know, just to cover it up a little bit, they decided to, to say, okay, well, there, there was this tree. Uh, so, so the tree wasn't real. But I'm going to argue that the tree is literal. The tree was real, a real tree with real fruit, uh, but that it represents a choice. It was a choice that Adam had to live in communion with God, to live in, in constant fellowship with God, or to reject that relationship. In other words, God gave Adam a choice. Sound familiar? Based on Romans chapter 6? It should. Remember that you and I have the freedom to choose as well because anyone in Christ Jesus no longer has sin as their master. It didn't have to be a tree. Uh, it, it could have been anything. He could have said, don't mow the lawn. Uh, don't, don't put uh, mustard on the left half of your sandwich you know, or the top half of your sandwich or whatever. It, it could have been anything, but he chose the tree. He chose something that was just morally neutral. It wasn't uh, in and of itself good or bad necessarily, but it represented a willful decision that had been entrusted with Adam, something that God put in front of Adam and said, you have a choice to make, and I'm just going to let you make it. So Adam and Eve had a choice. They could obey God and remain in fellowship with him, or they could disobey God. They could choose to determine for themselves what was good and evil. Think people still do that? Try to determine for themselves what's good and bad? They could be in fellowship with God, or they could make themselves their own gods and determine for themselves what's good or bad. So the choice was really about two things that almost entirely overlap with one another. Number one, being obedient to God. And number two, continuing in this relationship with God. And as we get to the next chapter in Genesis, we see that Eve has this encounter with a serpent. He tempted her to eat of the fruit, challenging. Uh, he, he tempted her by challenging absolutely everything that God had instructed them regarding the tree. Uh, so that's the first thing that you and I are when we sin. It starts with being tempted. When I sin, I'm tempted. I'm tempted. 
So what is it about this particular fruit, uh, the, the sin we're being tempted to commit? That's what the fruit represents. What is it about it that draws us and entices us, lures us, just, just brings us into it? We find some insight in verse 6 of chapter 3. Here we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So did you catch that? There are actually three things that lured her in to this particular fruit, to this particular sin. First, she saw that the tree was good for food. In other words, there was an instant gratification. There was something immediately in it for her, some type of benefit, some type of payoff that was immediate, uh, an instant pleasure that was perceived and anticipated. It was like driving by a bar, maybe, and seeing a sign that says, we're open for business, open for happy hour. It was like browsing the internet, and suddenly this pop-up ad comes up, and it says, click here. It was like coming across a brand new car parked on the side of the road with the engine running, and man, that thing is beautiful, and there's nobody in sight to say, hey, that's my car. The temptation was there, and there was an immediate benefit that she perceived. Secondly, the tree was a delight to Eve's eyes. And we've probably all heard this saying uh, when it comes to, uh, to, to people, uh, you know, like a guy will say, oh, you know, she's easy on the eyes. Teenagers, you might not have heard this one. Maybe it's old. I don't know. Uh, you know, a guy would say, oh, she's easy on the eyes, or a woman would say, oh, he's, he's easy on the eyes. In other words, what we're seeing here, the thing with Eve, is the sin has a visual appeal. It looks so good. It looks so enticing. You could, you could sit there and look at it all day. Oh, yeah, you're just going to look at it. No, let's take it a little bit further. You could, you could own it. You could make it yours. Let's take it a little bit further. You could make it subservient to you. You could really own it. It could be all yours. See, it's, it's a slippery slope. You see where all this goes? It, it's, it just goes right down the slippery slope. Third and finally, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. It would pump up her ego. Maybe she didn't feel like she had enough wisdom already. Obviously, that was an issue for her. She didn't feel wise. Oh, but this, this sin will make you wise. It will make you feel better about yourself. It'll make you feel like you are the king of your own universe. You're the center of your own universe. Not that she didn't already have enough. She had everything that she could possibly want or need. If she wanted wisdom, James tells us, she could have gone straight to God and asked for wisdom. But that would require that God have something to give her. And that would require that God have something that she doesn't have. It would make him superior to her in some way. Oh, but if she just eats of the fruit, she won't have to rely on God for anything. So take a closer look at these three things, these three things that lured her into sin. These are the same three things that lure us into sin. Number one, lust. Number two, materialism. Number three, ego or pride. That's what sin offered. And that is the bait that so often entices us. It's the bait that so often lures us and, and, and draws us in to swallow the hook, line, and sinker. Swallow the whole thing. We'll just take it all and make it ours. And that brings us to the one who baited the hook. 
In this case, it's the serpent, which was in the form, uh, that, that was the form that Satan uh, appeared to them in the garden. Apparently, it wasn't unusual for animals to talk in the Garden of Eden. She's not taken back like, whoa, why, why are you talking? In this perfect world that God had created, apparently, animals were able to talk. So when the serpent starts tempting her and luring her in, she doesn't say, wait a minute, you're a serpent, why are you talking? It's apparently just a common, uh, common thing for her. Uh, so, so, you know, Satan uh, starts talking to her. And he's known by a lot of different names. Lucifer, the devil, the enemy, the evil one, the accuser of the brethren, the tempter, the prince of darkness, and another name that's very fitting, the deceiver. The deceiver. It's very odd to note that if you take uh, a look at all the surveys of these people who, um, who, who go to church week in and week out, there's actually a, a disproportionate number of people uh, who go to church in our country who don't really believe uh, that Satan actually exists. They believe that he's some mythological creature or he's an allegorical creature or you know something like that. For whatever reason, they don't believe that Satan exists or is a real thing, a real person or entity. And the odd thing about this is these are people who profess to be little Christs. That's what Christian means, means little Christ. They profess to be, to be Christians. But Jesus believed and taught that Satan was very real. Uh, Jesus didn't think that Satan was just some imaginary character that you know, was mythological or that represented uh, you know, evil or temptation or whatever. No, Jesus believed that Satan was very, very real real. And he warned his followers about the schemes of Satan because Satan's goal is always to work against God's plans and God's purposes for our lives. And so what he wants to do, what Satan wants to do is he wants to discourage us from trusting in God. He wants us to doubt God. And so he tempts us to turn our hearts away from God. And his goal is to wreak spiritual havoc on our lives. And his favorite method of doing this is the same method that he used here with Eve, and that is deception. Every time we sin, we are deceived. And so that's the second thing we are. Who am I when I sin? When I sin, I am deceived. Deceived how? Deceived into thinking that this is something that I should do. Deceived into believing that this, that whatever it is that's bad, that God has warned me against, is actually for my good. I've convinced myself, or, or I've become convinced by somebody else, uh, that God's way isn't necessarily the best way. Maybe I can come up with something even better, just, just even a little bit better than what God has come up with. And, and, and something that's more, more satisfying than what God has to offer Somehow I am deceived. Somehow I am led to believe that God, that something that God has specifically warned me against either doesn't apply to me or it shouldn't apply to me. So look at how the serpent starts in, in chapter 3, verse 1. He says to Eve, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course, that's not, what, that's not what God said. He didn't say you can't eat of any tree. He just said you couldn't eat of this one. But what he's doing here, what, what this statement is doing, is bringing God's character into question. It's, it's as if to say, you know, God, you know, he, he's been known to, to, you know, stretch the truth a little bit sometimes. He's been known to deceive people from time to time. So is, is this what he told you? 
Is that what he said? And of course, it's not. Now, you might not think that you are so easily deceived. Really? Yeah, we are. You and I are so easily deceived. You and I are more vulnerable to this than we realize because every time we sin, we rationalize it somehow. Somehow, we, you know, mental gymnastics or whatever, somehow we, we make it seem okay. And personally, you know, in, in the lives of people I've known, people I've loved, I've seen sin rationalized in such ridiculous ways. And it just shows that people are willing to go to any ends necessary in order to justify whatever sin they decide they're going to commit. But all we really do when we sin, all we really do is deceive ourselves when we try to rationalize sin. We're not deceiving God. We're deceiving ourselves. We're deceived every single time we sin. We think that we're the fish that can just take the bait without swallowing the hook. You guys ever been fishing? You know, you'll throw your line out there and, you know, you feel a tug and, oh, man, the bait's gone. And so you throw it out again, oh, man, the bait's gone. You throw it out again and eventually you get the point. You get to the point where, okay, the first little glimpse of a tug, you're going to get and you got it. And that's, that's how it works. So we, we convince ourselves, oh, you know, I'll just, I'll take the bait, but not the hook. But eventually, eventually, we get caught by it. We forget the fact, maybe, that God will eventually discipline every child he receives if we are truly his. There was a famous psychology experiment in the 1960s that was done by a guy named Stanley Milgram at, uh, at Yale University. The experiment went like this. Dr. Milgram uh, got a bunch of wires and, uh, and a helmet thing, and he put them all together, wired it all together, and made it look like there was this, this shock machine. Uh, and he, then he hooked the, the helmet and the wires up to an actor who was participating in the study uh, and brought regular people just like you and me in to teach the actor to memorize uh, these sets of words and to repeat these sets of words after the teacher. And the punishment for getting one of the words wrong was being shocked by the teacher. Uh, the teacher, uh, the person, the, the subject, the person being experimented on, really, the one who's trying to get the person to memorize the words, uh, sat in front of this enormous panel of, of levers uh, that were supposed to, uh, supposed to shock more and more, depending on how many levers you put up. Uh, it, it was, apparently, it was all the way up to 450 volts, which I don't believe is actually that strong, because from what I've read, defibrillators start at like 6,000 volts. So 450 isn't that strong, but that's not even the point. The point is the participants didn't know, uh, you know how much electricity they were giving. They just knew that the screams were getting louder and louder each time they pressed the button, each time they shocked the, the actor, supposedly, uh, all they knew is that the screams got more intense, more painful, and as the, the, the actor started begging them to stop, two-thirds of these teachers would not stop until finally the scream stopped and the actor pretended to just completely pass out from the pain. And so what Dr. Milgram found out was that two-thirds of the people were willing to put this voltage machine, this, uh, this electric uh, I don't know, chair or whatever, concoction, two-thirds of them were willing to go all the way to maximum strength to the point that the participant, that the actor, passed out. And Milgram actually had a bigger question that he was after. And that is, how could thousands upon thousands 
of Nazi German officers working in concentration camps have done what they've done? How, how could they possibly have shot and, and gassed and starved, dehumanized, raped, and tortured millions and millions of people to death, supposedly simply on orders from their commanding officers. And his conclusion to this study was this. They could do it the same way that you and I get lured into sin. All it takes is a persuasive situation, one where we allow ourselves to be deceived. And this is the exact same temptation that Satan offered to Adam and Eve. It's the same temptation that he offers you and me to this day. Did God really say you shouldn't do this or that? What could possibly be so wrong with fill in the blank with your favorite sin? What could possibly be so wrong with cussing? What could possibly be so wrong with getting drunk now and then? What could possibly be so wrong with whatever? See, when we sin, we are deceived. And every time we sin, we're essentially saying right back to the tempter, you know what, maybe you're right. Maybe he didn't say I shouldn't do this. So when we sin, we're tempted, we're deceived, and third, we are rebellious. When I sin, I am a rebel. Every time we sin, we're we're like little kids who intentionally do something that our parents specifically told us not to do. Parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You tell your kids not to do something, and it's like, oh, the idea is just right at the front of their brain, and they're looking for any opportunity to just put a toe over the line, just just a, a fingertip over the line. God has drawn the line, and every time we sin, we're defiantly walking right up to the line and saying, I'm going over it anyway. We're walking right over it. So there's a part of us that either says, you know, I don't care if that line's there. I'm going to cross it anyway. Or there's a part of us that says, that line shouldn't be there. I've got a better idea. Let's move it back over here a little bit. Let's negotiate, God. There's a well-known evangelist named Ray Comfort. I call him Ray Discomfort. Uh, not to insult him, but because he has a way of walking up to people and starting a conversation with people and making them uh, very uncomfortable, taking them out of their comfort zone. And he'll go up to people and he'll, he'll strike up a, a conversation with them. Eventually, he'll start asking questions like, have you ever sinned? And you'd be amazed at how many people say, no, I don't think I've ever sinned. You'd be amazed at how many people have no idea what sin is or have no idea the fact that they have sinned so badly and they, they, they just resent the fact, a lot of them just resent the fact that God has set any type of moral boundaries on human behavior at all. I, I have a feeling they wouldn't resent that so much if you had you know, some uh, mixed martial artist say, okay, well, I'm going to put you in a leg lock until you resent the fact that this, uh, that this is a right thing for me to do. Uh, you know, they resent the fact that God has put moral boundaries on their lives. And so Ray Comfort will ask questions like, well, have you ever committed adultery? You know, most, most of the people are going to say, no, you know, I've, I've been faithful to my wife or to my husband. You know, I, I would never do something like that. But then uh, Ray Comfort will turn it around and say, well, you know, the Bible says that if you even look at somebody with lust in your heart, uh, you have committed adultery. So let's ask this question again. Have, have you ever committed adultery? Have you ever looked at somebody with lust? And the answer almost every time is, of course I have. Uh, then he'll ask, have you ever told a lie? Uh, and everybody tells a lie at some point or another. It's almost like we're not ashamed of lying anymore. Most people will come straight out and say, yeah, I've, I've lied. Uh, they'll affirm the fact that they've lied. And then he'll ask, have you ever murdered somebody? 
Uh, and again, most people will say no, but God, but Ray Comfort points out, you know, this is a matter of the heart. Have you ever been so, uh, so mad at somebody that in your heart you have the motivation to kill them? And again, most people will say, yeah, you know, I, I have. I've, I've been at that, that, uh, that point. So at this point, he'll say to them, so what you're telling me is that you're an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. And he shows them from the scriptures that this type of person cannot go to heaven on their own merit. Just the slightest sin, and we're disqualified from going to heaven on our own merit, but we need a Savior. See, in our flesh, we have this tendency to, to kind of just downplay sin and think, you know, it's not that serious of a thing. So, so we don't want to call it sin. We don't want uh, God to see us as, as rebels. And so we downplay it and we say, oh, you know, I, I messed up or, or I made a mistake. Uh, friends, there is a huge difference. There is an enormous difference between making a mistake and sinning. By definition, nobody intentionally makes a mistake. That's an oxymoron. But every time we sin, it is no mistake. It is intentional. It might not be thought out clearly. We might not have thought clearly about it, but it's something that we willfully chose to do. And that's why the Bible doesn't say that we're mistakers. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that we're uh, messer-uppers or you know, anything like that. We are rebels. We are sinners. And that creates a problem for us if we are going to stand before a holy God who has a zero, zero tolerance policy against sin. Something has gone wrong deep inside of us, and it gets us every time. It gets us regularly. We have no hope within ourselves by our own merit because we have chosen the tree of good and evil over the tree of life every time we sin. We choose against the relationship with God. We choose against it. And we all know it instinctively. We all know that we've done things that we shouldn't do. We're tempted, we deceive ourselves, and we rebel against God. I know it. You know it. And Paul knew it when he was writing chapter 7 of Romans. Go ahead and turn back to Romans chapter 7. Friends, Paul's argument that we saw earlier tells us that when we sin, there is something inside of us that realizes that we are not doing what we should be doing, and we are not who we were created to be in Christ, nor is it even who we want to be. It's like chasing after a rainbow. I mean, if somebody says, hey, go, go chase that rainbow, what do you think is going to happen? You know what's going to happen. You're not going to reach it because it's not something that you can physically reach. The more you chase it, the further away it gets until it's just gone. It's an illusion of contentment and independence and self-sufficiency. Who am I? Who are we when we sin? We are sinners who need a Savior. When I sin, this is the final one, number four. When I sin, I am a sinner who needs a Savior. Friends, the debt of one sin. One teeny-weeny sin might seem so small, but that debt is more than you or I are ever capable of paying off because every sin is against a God who is infinite in his nature. And therefore, the debt of even the smallest, most seemingly insignificant sin is infinite. And yet, you and I are finite. So how can somebody who's finite pay an infinite debt? We can't. 
We can't. That, that means that the dilemma just got a whole lot more serious for you and me. But there's good news. And that is that despite the fact that we are sinners, despite the fact that we are rebels, despite the fact that we deceive ourselves, God loves us. God loves people. And he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to redeem sinners and rebels to pay the debt of every sin of anyone who will look to him as their only hope, turning from their sin, repenting, and trading in their life which is immersed in sin for a life that is immersed in Jesus. Look at what Paul writes in verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. My mind and my flesh. My body and my mind. It's, it's a total dilemma. A big paradox. Almost like a contradiction. So the question is, what lures you? What, what tempts you to sin? What draws you into cosmic treason. This is what causes us to be, as Paul says here, wretched. Wretched. Not a pretty word. Not a word that I want on, uh, you know, on, my, on my tombstone someday. Wretched. Wretched. Imagine a boxer who's, who's fighting for a championship uh, in a 15-round bout, and after round 15, he stands up in the middle of the ring, completely pummeled, ribs smashed, uh, so beat up that he's no longer recognizable. Uh, it sounds like a Rocky movie, right? Okay, but now switch to, to his opponent. His opponent, on the other hand, barely has a sweat broken. Maybe it's just from the warmth in the building. Definitely doesn't look like he's been in a fight. And that's what Paul says it looks like, what it feels like to be wretched. The flesh, which Paul now calls this body of death, is too great for us to overcome on our own. And man, sometimes it leaves you feeling just pummeled when you wage war against it. We are helpless against it on our own. So who will rescue us? Who can save us from these bodies that have a stronger inclination for sin than our minds have for righteousness? That's what sin boils down to. Let me say that again. Sin boils down to us having a strong, our bodies having a stronger inclination for sin than our minds have for righteousness. Who can save us? Jesus can. And only Jesus can. Fully God, fully man. He is our mediator. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. He's the tree of life. That's what the tree of life represented, represented Christ. So choose him. When you're faced with temptation, choose the tree of life. Choose Jesus. He alone brings us back into that right relationship with God when we sin, whether it's a sin that we consider to be almost insignificant or a sin that we consider to be pretty much unforgivable. You ever been there? Where you feel like you've done something that's unforgivable? I, I've been there. I've been there. I felt like there's, there's no way that this can be reconciled. There's no way that God has not given up on me at this point. But the Bible tells us this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is not going to give up on you. He is not going to give up on you. Once you're his, you are his. 
There will be no point where he says, Toby, you know what, I'm, I'm, just, I'm done with you. There will be no point where he says, you know, whoever you are, I'm just done with you. You're, you're no longer free to come to me. There will be no point where he says that. He's always, always going to be there, working in us, working through us, bringing us to repentance, bringing us back to him when we sin, because we still belong to him. We still belong to him. He's going to finish everything that he started in us. We are his worksmanship. We are his worksmanship. He's the one doing the work on us. He's going to, start, he's going to finish what he started. And because he alone can save us from the consequences of our wretchedness, and because he's promised to do just that in exchange for us just trusting in him alone for our right standing and our right relationship with God. Because of that, we can experience great joy, great confidence, uh, and great thanksgiving as we anticipate the day when he finally completes the good work that he began in each one of us. And he finally frees us from these bodies of death. Who am I when I sin? I'm still a child of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you made the way, that you made a way that we never could have to be in right relationship with you, to be in right relationship with God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our mediator, that your righteousness is imputed, is is given freely to us, and that our sinfulness Every single one is handed over to you. Because, Lord, we we know that we couldn't have stood before you. We couldn't have stood before the Father on Judgment Day on our own merit. It's because of what you've done that we can be back in right relationship with God. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would shine your light into the depths of the darkness of our hearts and make it completely yours. Make it all yours. Teach us, Lord, to turn from our sin. Teach us, Lord, to love you so much that we desire you, we desire righteousness more than sin, more than we desire sin. And give us strength, courage, and wisdom in in dealing with these bodies of death that have this this great desire to disobey you and, and sin against you. Lord Jesus, forgive us. Forgive us for the times when we have willfully chosen to sin against you. Forgive us for the times, Lord, when we think that we've got things figured out and we don't need your ways. We belong to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that what you began in us, you will continue. We love you. Keep us full of This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission 
of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.